0: You're not here usually terry's been tracking through the gospel of luke for about 18 months two years two and a half, four half three four years um, it's good verse by verse there's no other way um so we're going to take a bit of a break from luke for at least today and we'll be flicking over to matthew's gospel and we're going to be studying this idea of forgiveness and what jesus has to say on the topic I think forgiveness is one of the most critical aspects of the Christian life, and yet I also think it's one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life. It's the most critical because I think if you could reduce Christianity down to just one word, I think forgiveness just about sums it up, doesn't it? With uh, our vertical forgiveness with God and our horizontal forgiveness with each other. But it's also one of the most difficult because just as C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity... Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And then to mention the idea at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. I don't know about you, but I can completely share in his sentiment there. You see, it's one thing to talk about forgiveness, but it's something quite different to actually forgive. And for some of you here this morning, maybe this sermon um, will make you a bit uncomfortable as you reflect on some of the, the past hurts in your own life and how you've had to wrestle through forgiveness in those unique circumstances. But as delicate as a subject this is, it's something that we can't ignore um, because, as I said, it's something that defines us, uh, who we are and what we're to do as Christians. You remember that two weeks ago, Luke, uh, Luke Terry spoke to us from Luke, um, from Luke chapter 17, about this idea of forgiveness. And uh, if you can remember back then, Um, he was explaining to us uh, that as Christians we're to live as servants of God and what that looks like in the context of forgiveness and um, if we were to think of that like the theory lesson today we'll we'll put skin on that we'll be thinking about the practical side of things you know at school or at university you do the the theory and then you do the case study or the worked example well our worked example today is going to come straight from Matthew chapter 18 the parable of the unforgiving servant if you want to flick there and this is actually um, the cross-reference to Luke chapter 17 that Terry spoke to us from. So the two uh, go very well together. By the way, a parable, if you're not familiar, is simply something that, that is cast alongside. Uh, the word parable means cast alongside. So Jesus' parables were cast alongside a particular meaning or truth. Uh, it's been They're like allegories with a deeper meaning behind um, the words. So it's been said that A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, if you will. So think about that, and I'll read the passage out for us this morning as we go. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle his accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw himself into prison till he should, threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were grieved and came to and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, "You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him over to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father also will do to each of you if from your heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. It's a pretty solemn warning. Uh, If you're taking notes this morning, um, I've split today's talk up into three sections. The first section is the command to forgive, that's verse 21 to 22. The second section is the reason to forgive, that's looking from verses 23 to 30. And thirdly, the failure to forgive, that's 31 to 35. So the command to forgive, the reason to forgive and the failure to forgive. We'll look at these in turn. Firstly, the command to forgive, verses 21 and 22. Picture yourself for a moment... Uh, You're in the fishing village of Capernaum on the northern end of the Galilean Sea. You're out of the midday heat, away from the flies and the sticky sand and you're reclining in uh, the Apostle Peter's house um, with your friends, the disciples, and you're sitting around in his living room there listening to Jesus teach to you all about child likeness for believers. In fact, just as Jesus is talking to you about childlikeness, uh, there's a little child there sitting to the side who's intently listening. And Jesus invites that little child to come up the front, and he uses that child as a dynamic illustration of the point he's making about the importance of childlikeness in the faith of a believer. That's in Matthew 18, verse 2. And so the little child's up there all excited, and, and Jesus explains what he wants, um, the message that he's teaching, through this little child. And as he goes on to explain what childlikeness looks like, he he breaks it down into a few points. Matthew 18.3, we are to enter the kingdom like little children. Verse 6, we are to be protected like little children. Verse 10, we are to be cared for like little children. Verse 15, we are to be disciplined like little children. And finally, our passage today, we we are forgiven and we are to forgive like little children. That's the context here, this context of child-likeness that our passage is found in this morning. So to illustrate what this might mean, um, let me give you a little story. My, most of you know that Julie, my wife and I, we um, recently purchased our first home and we spent a lot of time and effort putting new furniture into that house and uh, it took us a couple of months by the time we were done. And we'd finally put the last bit of furniture in and we are pretty happy with ourselves because it was a big job done. And uh, my parents came to visit for the weekend and they brought up my little two-year-old nephew, Connor, because I will babysitting him for the weekend. And uh, everything was going great. We are having a really good weekend. And then within the final half hour of, of their departure, um, I'm in the lounge room there and I hear this scraping noise. And I turn around and in like slow motion, 1080 HP DVD quality, uh, Blu-ray quality, I see, forever etched in my memory, my little gorgeous two-year-old nephew with his big bug eyes and smile on his face, gouging out a groove in our brand-new, teak, freshly polished, overly-priced, yet dearly-loved entertainment unit. (laughs) And as I see, it had this, this, this little aeroplane, had this steel hook on the top to hang, and it was upside down, right across. And I saw this... And after you know freaking out, I ran off and had a bit of a sulk to Julie, and she's in the bedroom. And I said, "We're gonna to have to go spend hundreds of dollars now to get our TV unit fixed because Connor's just destroyed the whole thing." And Julie looked at me with those you know don't be ridiculous eyes, and um, and she did what every lovely Christian wife does. She quoted scripture at me, and she said, "David, moth and rust destroy." You know, Matthew 6.20, store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and baby Connor can't destroy. And so I just, you know, checkmate. You can't really can't really contend with that, the word of God. But anyway, um, I don't hold any of that against little Connor. I, I'm proud to say I'm not sitting here still bitter or angry about <laughs> little Connor's episode with his toy aircraft. Why? Because there is a sense in which our attitude towards... we. We understand their ignorance, their inability to know any better. It's different for adults. We, we hold resentment against adults, but we don't against little children. That's like, you know, if Terry came over to visit and he brought his toy airplane <laughs> and he scratches out our entertainment unit, I'd have a very different attitude towards Terry at that point compared to Connor. I'd probably... Um ask him to go visit a a doctor or Mick or somebody and have a bit of a chat to him if he was playing with toy airplanes but nonetheless um, our attitude towards children is different when it comes to forgiveness we readily forgive children we don't hold grudges and I think that's that's important as we consider why Jesus has positioned his teaching on forgiveness here in the context of childlikeness it's not that Um, Our attitude towards each other is excusable behaviour like it is with children. But I think the attitude that we need to have with our forgiveness is is the willingness and the readiness to forgive each other like we do with little children. I think that's the relationship between the context and placing this passage on forgiveness in that context. So back in, in the house here, again commentators have speculated that this is the Apostle Peter's house. And so here we are in the cool of the day, Jesus is teaching... We're all intently listening to the teacher. Um, This is towards the back end of his ministry, by the way, Um, a few months before his passion. And as he's teaching, Peter, who's known to speak up for the disciples, just blurts out, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, Peter's been traveling around with Jesus for the past three years uh, by this point, and one of the radical things that Jesus has been doing over and over and over again throughout his ministry is exposing the narrowness of the Orthodox Jewish faith of that time. And undoubtedly, this rubbed off under his disciples, because here we have Peter trying to do the same, trying to advance beyond the rabbinical teaching of the day that said you only had to forgive someone three times, and then you could punish them. That's what the Jews believed. It was a teaching based on Amos, uh, chapter 1, where God forgave Israel's enemies three times, but on the fourth he punished them. This would have been in the minds of, of the disciples as they were listening to Jesus speak about forgiveness. So Peter pipes up out of the crowd and he asks this question about the extent of forgiveness. And his question is really a rhetorical one, isn't it? Because he offers an answer up to seven times. What Peter has done is he's taken the regular Jewish teaching of three, times it by two, six, and then added one for good measure, seven. Three times two equals six plus one equals seven. The disciples sitting around hearing this would have been like, did you see what Peter said? No way. He just totally stepped it up a notch. That would have been whispers going through the crowd like, oh, no, did he really go there? Like, he did. Oh, wow. So here we are seven times. Now think about what Peter's saying for a second. S- forgiving someone seven times, that is a monumental task. Huge. When, when somebody wrongs you, it might take you a month to get over it. Maybe a year, maybe longer. And then they do the same thing again and again and again. Seven times is a massive amount to forgive one person when we're talking about forgiveness. So let's not throw Peter under the bus. He had the right idea. He just underestimated a little. Because look here at verse 22. and Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. If they were shocked before, they're just speechless now. Their jaws would be to the floor. Let's break down what Jesus has just said. Peter takes a Jewish belief, multiplies it by two and adds one for good measure. Jesus takes Peter's answer, multiplies it by itself and then by another ten for good measure. 490 times, 70 times seven. That's a huge number when we're talking about forgiveness. But before you ask, the point here is not the mathematics. Jesus is not saying you forgive somebody 490 times and then keep a list in your pocket. When they hit 491, you cross them off the list and you start punishing. That's not what Jesus is saying. We know that's not what Jesus is saying from what Terry taught us the other week, the cross-reference passage to this, Luke chapter 17, where he says, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive. So how many times should you forgive someone? Friends, when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you stop asking that question. You forgive as many times as you're sinned against. There is no Limit to your forgiveness. Peter, Peter was asking Jesus uh, for a just measuring rod. And Jesus says, Peter, forget the measuring rod. Just keep on forgiving. No matter what happens, keep on forgiving. There is no limit. Which means for you and I here today, it is a fundamental characteristic of Christianity to forgive. And Jesus commands all of us to do it. Not just once, but relentlessly. Which means refusing to forgive someone. Unforgiveness is actually a sin because it's a direct disobedient to the command of Jesus here to forgive. And you know, unforgiveness, when you think about it, it's really quite ironic, isn't it? Because I'm sinning in my unforgiveness because somebody sinned against me. So I'm sinning because somebody sinned against me, but somehow I feel like my sin is more justified because it came after theirs. How different is that to a child screaming at their parents saying yeah well he hit me first it's no different it's exactly the same unforgiveness is a sin and as christians we're commanded to forgive that's the first point for this morning that we can't escape but it's one thing to say you should forgive the guy who cut you off in traffic and made you a little bit angry you know the trivial the minor offenses it's one thing to say we should forgive those but how do we forgive the big stuff how do we forgive the massive issues in life where somebody has so devastated you, who has so defiled you and abused you, where you'll carry the the emotional and the physical scars with you for the rest of your life until they put you in the ground. How do you forgive those offences? What reason is there to forgive those offences? You know, just this past week I was um, in the kitchen at work, work as an engineer out there at the the RAF base, not a RAFI, but contractor for them and um i'm sitting there around the coffee table and chatting with this bloke about this idea of forgiveness and he said dave even if i was a christian fundy like you um i i I couldn't i could not forgive somebody like brett cowan the man who abducted molested and murdered little 13 year old daniel morcom in 2003 i don't care what you say to me or what jesus you believe in there's no way i could forgive that guy Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, the outspoken atheist and journalist, he wrote in his book, Letters to a Young Contrarian, these words, The whole apparatus and absolution of forgiveness strikes me as positively immoral because it relieves us of the hard task of working out the ethical principles for ourselves. Hitchens is actually suggesting that it is immoral to forgive because somehow forgiving people relieves them or the criminal of their ethical responsibilities in taking ownership of their crime. So what does the gospel have to say in response to these charges? To my colleague or to Hitchens? What reason is there for us to forgive? Jesus doesn't leave us wondering. In this parable here, he gives us an answer. Verses 23 to 30. Let's have a look together. Verse 23, therefore, therefore, because I've just commanded you to forgive, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle his accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant fell down, therefore, before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Let's stop there for a moment. Before we understand the reason to forgive, we should come to a common definition of what forgiveness means. And notice uh, Jesus has defined it for us just here. Notice how he uses these commercial or economic terms. He says, "If forgiveness is like, if if sin is like a debt, then forgiveness is the cancellation of that debt." If sin is like a debt, then forgiveness is the cancellation of that debt. Forgiveness is the giving up of the right to seek repayment from the one who has wronged you. That's the definition that Jesus gives us of forgiveness here. Giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who has wronged you. In the commercial sense, it's the cancellation of the debt by absorbing the cost yourself. Even though you weren't the one at fault. Now, think beyond a money transaction for a moment. I'll give you a story from my own life. Um, I was a gunner a kid. I was born and raised out in the sticks. Went to boarding school uh, for year 11 and 12. And in year 11, I made the mistake of challenging the year 12. I was in a boarding house. In, in year 11, I made the, chal- the mistake of challenging the way the year 12s led in the boarding house. And I made a few comments about their leadership capacities. Anyway, this ended up getting back to them. And... Uh, and I got given a real hard time by the year 12, so the rest of 2004 when I was in year 11, when they heard a, heard about me saying that they were just bullies, basically. Now, I never actually experienced bullying up until that point in my life, but um, I can tell you that it affected me so much that when I came to university, I came here with an agenda to never be treated like that again, to be very liked by people, and if anyone didn't like me, I wouldn't cop any flack, i just put my shoulders out and, and say, bring it, you know? Not, not to put up with that kind of stuff again. That was my attitude coming into university as I studied engineering. But wouldn't you know it, at college, in my second year, 2007, I'm there in the dining hall. I was on staff. You know, I'd made it as far as you can at college. <laughs> um, I had my own ensuite. Um, so I'm there in the dining hall looking after all of these little fresh faces as they came into uh, university for the first time. And a mate of mine comes up and says, "Um, David, I was just chatting to a mate of yours. He said he knew you from school. And I turn over there and I look and wouldn't you know, sitting down at the dining room table is one of the big bad boarding school bullies. He'd obviously taken a few years off to have a few gap years and he was coming into university a bit later than I was. And as soon as I saw him, my jaw just clenched and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. He's on my turf now. The tables have turned. And from then on, I just wanted to, to make his life miserable. I wanted to you know, suggest to people, oh, you don't want to be friends with that guy. I wanted to, to kind of you know, pay back to him what he'd taken from me at university, at, at, at school. So every opportunity I'd have, I'd, just, I'd look to make a snide remark to people because I was living with unforgiveness. He had taken something from me and even though it was three years later on, I was still trying to make him pay for what he had done to me. But by contrast to my behaviour, Jesus speaks a parable here and he gives us an alternative response. Look at the example of the king, between the king and his servant. Verse 24. And when, the, when he had begun to settle his accounts, that's the king, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So the king is ordered in his accounts and one of his servants um, he finds out, has been stealing his money. Now, 10,000 talents, contextually, is an enormous amount of money, astronomical amount of money back then. It's a gigantic debt. In fact, the word you hear used in the Greek is myriad, which is the highest name given to a number in all of the Greek language. Saying 10,000 is quite literally like saying a zillion dollars today. It's an astronomical amount of money. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus, he writes and records that the entire annual revenue of King Herod for the entire province of Palestine was only 900 talents for 12 months. So in this parable, the servant owes the king more than 10 times the amount of King Herod's annual revenue. Zillions and zillions and zillions, untold, billions, a sum of money that that no servant in Antiquity could ever hope to repay in a lifetime. The king realized this. So, verse 25, as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had that the payment be made, an attempt to try and recapture just a f- fraction of the cost. The servant therefore fell down... Before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Having no other options, no collateral, no currency to place for his debt, the servant just begs. I will pay you all. Notice that that the servant never asks for mercy. Instead he says, I will pay you all. Again, there is no way he could have paid him all. It took the average worker in the first century Palestine 24 years to earn just one single talent. Do the math, that's 240,000 years to repay this debt, which is not possible. The point is, it is an impossibly large debt that the servant had no hope of ever repaying. And I think one of the subtle teachings of Jesus here is that he's demonstrating to us just how far religiosity has penetrated the hearts of human men that we think we can pay our own way out of our own sin debt. That shows complete ignorance of the enormity of the debt. Any worldview that says you can earn your own salvation by works completely misunderstands the enormity of our sin debt, and for that it robs God of his holiness by advocating that the belief that mere humans can they can reach the holy standard of God by our efforts it reduces God of his glory and it just puts you in a position that you can never repay your own debt the eightfold path of buddhism the hindu doctrine of karma the muslim code of law the jewish covenant scientology roman catholicism jehovah's witnesses Even secular atheism today with this whole attitude of of goodwill and charity. That's what's important. They're all based on works. Any worldview apart from Christianity that emphasizes what you must do, not what God has done, does not work. It's God's work that works, not your work. And for that reason, any worldview apart from Christianity is woefully inadequate Of salvation, because it grossly underestimates the sin debt that everybody owes God. Anyone who strives through their religiosity to earn salvation and or meaning in life will ultimately be found wanting in the courtrooms of God. But look at the king's response here in this parable. Because this is the distinctive of Christianity. If you ask why Christianity, this is the reason. The king forgave by grace, through compassion, his servant. Verse 27, the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. What other worldview do we have a God that does that? It was his right to seek repayment. He was king after all. It's his right. But he cancelled the debt by absorbing the cost himself. Verse 28, but. The knife just kind of slides out, but. The servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Now again, in that time and day, you used to earn about a hundred uh, about one denarii every day or so. So, 100 denarii is about three and a half months worth of work. The point is, it is a payable debt. This guy could have gone off and worked for, the, uh, for his master to, to pay back the debt. But instead of being like the king and extending forgiveness, this guy turns around and uh, demands payment. And as the fellow servant's getting choked out, he cries out, exact same words. Have patience with me and I will pay you all. You would have thought that that would have triggered the guy's mind. Oh, that was me not that long ago begging for mercy, but no. He's not interested in mercy, remember. He was only interested in payment. And So he throws his servant off to to, to prison. Here's the point. The man who was forgiven a great debt could not forgive a small debt. Jesus is speaking very plainly here to all of us. Unforgiveness is hypocrisy. Unforgiveness is hypocrisy. The heavenly meaning behind this earthly parable is that the enormous debt of your sin is forgiven by God, whose currency was not mere coin, but the the blood of his very own son. It was there at Calvary that humanity's impossible, unpayable sin debt was paid in full by the only one who could pay. And that is the reason why we are commanded to forgive, lest we end up like this hypocritical servant. The Apostle Paul wrote, forgive one another. Why? Because God in Christ first forgave you. If we don't forgive one another, if we refuse to forgive one another, Jesus is calling us out and he's stamping on our foreheads, hypocrite. An unforgiving Christian is living a hypocritical life because they're claiming on the one hand Christ's forgiveness while choking those around them with unforgiveness. Now, you might not go around choking people, literally. Literally. But hey, if you bully me at high school, I'll try and make your life a miserable wreck for the next couple of months. We ended up becoming good mates, by the way. If you punch me, I'm going to punch you back. you gossip about me, I'm going to gossip about you. It's your birthday and I'm not even going to acknowledge it. Or even more sinister. You've hurt me in the past, so I'm going to make every effort I can to keep our children away from you as punishment. Dad, you hurt me so much growing up through abuse and neglect that I now refuse to communicate with you. These are all examples of unforgiveness, no different to the man choking out his servant. You know what that tension is in the Middle East today? This Arab-Israeli conflict, this battle between two half-brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, that's now been raging for over 5,000 years, That conflict is the natural outworking of this philosophy of unforgiveness. And so for thousands and thousands of years now, blood has been spilt in the Middle East because when they hit us, we'll hit them back. A wrongs B, B wrongs A, A wrongs B, B wrongs A, on and on and on. This goes down in this devastating spiral of destruction. It happens in the Middle East. It happens back here in Australia, in our workplaces, in our families, in our marriages with our children. It even happens here in the congregation at church. Unforgiveness is around every corner of life. But in stark contrast to the logical outworking of this philosophy of unforgiveness, Jesus speaks a parable here, a parable about a king who by grace forgave his debtor. A parable that in the coming months from the time that it was spoken became a cosmic reality when Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, was strung up on a common criminal's cross. And where insolence was hurled in him, where irreverence was hurled in him, where indifference was hurled in him, for the first time in the history of all history, sin didn't bounce back. Sin stopped. Because what did Jesus say when he was there on the cross? Looking down, what did he say? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They didn't even know what they were doing was a sin and still Jesus forgave them. Which answers the question, by the way, can you forgive someone if they haven't asked you for forgiveness? Absolutely. Absolutely. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ not only shows us the enormity of our sin debt, but it also shows us the enormity of God's grace for us. What does that tell you about the esteem God has for you and me, for his creation? That he would condescend into human flesh write himself into the script of human existence and play the main part. We do not worship a deistic God who sets the clock and sits back. We have a personal God to be in relationship with. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. The Bible doesn't teach that we're to forgive and forget. Quite the contrary. We're to forgive and remember. Remember the inexcusable debt that has been forgiven by God in us. We have been pulled out of darkness into his marvelous light and it's by remembering that reality that we can remain humble and in so doing take that vertical forgiveness, bend it out, horizontally into relationships around us when people wrong us that's the reason why we can forgive it's an application straight from the lord's prayer father forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors it's a scary prayer to pray if we're not willing to forgive i love the quote that terry shared as he was preaching on forgiveness the other week Uh, george herbert such a great great quote he just listen. He that cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass if he would ever reach heaven, for everyone has need to be forgiven. Forgiveness is the very foundation upon which our entire lives are built. How can we not forgive in light of that reality? So first, we're commanded to forgive. Secondly, this morning, the reason why we're commanded to forgive is because God in Christ has first forgiven us. And thirdly this morning, the failure to forgive, verses 31 to 35. Let's look at the consequences of unforgiveness. I'll read this out, verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and delivered him over to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you from his heart that does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Solemn warning to each of us. Evidently, the unforgiving servant's behavior didn't go unnoticed by those around, and so they ran off to the king to explain the hypocrisy of this guy. So the the king brings him before him for a second time, and interestingly, he still doesn't ask for mercy, because he's not interested in mercy, he's only interested in payment. And so the king's like, if it's payment you want, it's payment you'll get. And so he hands him off to the torturers. The servant who was originally threatened with justice received mercy, but in the end despised the mercy and so received justice and sent off to the torturers. Now, I know the question you have, I think, because it was a question I have, what on earth does it mean to be sent off to the torturers? Some translations read jailers. This this confused me for a little bit. Is Jesus really saying that if you don't forgive people, you're going to go to hell? Is that what he's teaching here? Maybe in some ultimate sense, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. Because in the immediate context, Jesus is talking about believers forgiving other believers. Remember that unforgiving servant was forgiven that great debt. So in the context of the parable, he is a believer. So we're talking about believers forgiving unbelievers. And salvation is not predicated... Upon your ability to forgive, is it? If it were, why on earth did Paul make such a point of champion in the law-free gospel of grace? You're not saved by your ability to forgive others. You're saved by that again, that would be works righteousness, right? You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Ephesians two, one to ten. But that said, while an apple that grows on an apple tree doesn't give the tree its life it's evidence to the fact that the tree has life in the same way while forgiveness doesn't give you spiritual life it's evidence to the fact that you do have spiritual life forgiveness is one of the fruits of the faith and one of the evidences that you are truly redeemed but if going to the torturers or the jailers doesn't mean going to hell or some ultimate destination then what on earth does it mean? Well, I think Jesus is talking about some form of spiritual discipline. Some form of spiritual discipline. Verse 35 um, applies that to all of us as well, by the way, this spiritual discipline. And I think the point here is the minute we take God's justice for granted, the minute we refuse to be a conduit for the very grace we have received is the moment we will receive nothing other than God's holy discipline. It's like what David says about Israel in Psalm 81 verse 12. I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, lamenting over Israel. Friends, an unforgiving person is tortured or imprisoned by the stubbornness of their own heart. Because here's the irony of the unforgiveness. When you're trying to make the other person pay for what they've done to you, the one who's really paying is you. It's been said that unforgiveness is like you drinking poison hoping they die. Isn't that good? It's like you damaging yourself with the hope that they'll be damaged. Remember that bully I was telling you about from high school? He'd moved on in life. He would not have given me a second thought. Me, on the other hand, I was the one who went to uni trying to be a changed person. I was the one who was bitter. I was the one who was resentful. I was the one who was taking every opportunity I could when I saw him three years later to make his life miserable. Ultimately, I was the one with the problem because I was the one drinking the poison And he was going on his merry way. He wasn't thinking about me at all. Ultimately, I was the one with the problem. Macmillan wrote in his book, None of These Diseases The moment I start hating a man, I become his slave. That person has moved on in life. They're not thinking about you. They may live in another town, they may live overseas, they may even be dead. You know, you may have a mother or a father who's passed away, and because of past hurt, you refuse to forgive them. And so even though they're dead and gone, they're still controlling you from the grave because of your unforgiveness. Unforgiveness in that situation is like you drinking poison hoping they die even if they're already dead. Can you see the pointless of that, pointlessness of that? It's just self-destructive. Wisby says. An unforgiving spirit is the devil's playground and before long it becomes the Christian's battleground. The world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. Some of the most miserable people you will meet in this life are the way they are because they refuse to forgive. They're locked up in their own self-induced prison of hatred and bitterness and stubbornness. J.R.R. Tolkien in his trilogy, Lord of the Rings, I think, really hit the nail on the head with this. You know, there's this, this great ring of power. It looks kind of like this one. Anyway, um, what we see over and over and over again in that trilogy is that people, even if they have very good intentions, they all take this ring of power and try and wield it for their own intentions however good their intentions may be that bloke in the fellowship who's always trying to attack Frodo at the end he wanted to wield the power of the ring to defeat the dark lord but ultimately the dark lord consumed him i think the point is that you cannot use darkness to defeat darkness Every single one of those guys in the Lord of the Rings ironically fell into darkness themselves, locked up in their own self-induced prison of desire. So whatever pain you've experienced over the years, whatever disappointments, whatever abuse you've experienced, or even those you love like a child, that's, that's often worse. Whatever suffering it is, Jesus is saying to you that by holding on to unforgiveness, you cannot fix the situation. Don't try and wield the power of the ring. It's just self-destructive. We must give up our right to seek repayment. Listen to John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress. It just doesn't get any better than this. Listen to this. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending... And upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom, a sepulchre. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed off his back and fell from his shoulders and began to tumble. And so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulchre where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of the burden. He looked therefore and looked again till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks and then said this, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor Could aught the grief, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What a place is this! Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed Sepulchre, blessed rather be the man that was put to shame for me. That written by an uneducated man, John Bunyan, and he said it so well place where Christians burned fell from his back was the blessed cross of Jesus Christ that's where our burdens need to be laid today and this isn't an easy thing to do that's why again in Luke 17 Jesus compares forgiveness like trying to move a sycamore tree the only tree in all of the Middle East with the deepest roots and the hardest roots it's like we have to go there, though. We have to tunnel down to the root of our issue because it's only there that we can deal with the problem. Otherwise, you cut a weed off at the head, it's just going to go right back. That's where we need to go. We need to tunnel down to the root, to the issue of unforgiveness, and the only solution to that is the gospel. But practically speaking, how on earth do we do this? What on earth does this look like on a day-to-day basis? How do we forgive Here are two things, there's more, um, but these two two places are a good place to start I think. First of all, take your feelings of thoughts and bitterness and hatred or whatever it is, resentment, to the Lord in prayer. You might not want to do that, I've had to forgive people and I did not want to forgive them at all, I didn't even want to pray about it. Pray about not wanting to pray about it. Talk to the Lord. Be candid. Be real. Be honest. You don't need to dress up your prayers with theological jargon. Stormio Martin, get one of her books. She's she's got great advice on how to pray. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Be real, be honest, be candid. Ask that the burden would be loosed off your back. Secondly, remind yourself by the truth, of the truth, by looking in the scriptures. And here's a good place to start: Romans 12:19. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That is a promise directly from the Lord to you and to me. God is saying that the justice that you rightly seek, which is a product of you being made in the image of God, by the way, the justice that you rightly seek for what has been done to you, God will avenge for. And he'll do that in one of two ways. From Scripture, we know that if the perpetrator is repentant, if they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, we know that the sin or the crime that they committed against you will be nailed to the cross with Jesus. If they're not repentant, then we can be rest assured that as Paul says in Romans 2.6, God will pay back to them according to their works. That judgment awaits them on the day of wrath. And you and I cannot improve upon these two ultimate realities. But that's exactly what unforgiveness tries to do. It's the peak of arrogance to think that we can. That's just like saying, Jesus, I know you died on the cross for that person who, who wronged me. I know that they've put their faith in you, but they need your death on the cross plus the silent treatment from me. Jesus, I know that you have promised in your word that you have you have put eternal judgment down for those who refuse to put their faith in you, but they need that hell plus the punch in the face from me. Do you hear how ridiculous that sounds? You and I cannot improve upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, so why do we bother with unforgiveness? Give the ring to God. Take your unforgiveness, loose the straps at the cross of Christ. And of course, this isn't going to magically make everything all better, nor will it erase the pain or the memories or the heartache, or the physical, or the emotional scarring that you may carry until you die. But it will liberate you from feeling like a victim. And it will liberate you from the self-induced prison of hatred and bitterness and stubbornness and resentment. Really, this is the core of forgiveness and the answer to the objection of Hitchens and my colleague. Because, you see, Christians can forgive all sorts of abhorrent atrocities because we realize that forgiveness is not a minimization of the thing that was done. Again, forgiveness is not a minimization of what was done to you. You're not just letting them get away with it by forgiving them, which is the misconception inherent in Hitchens and my colleague that forgiveness somehow removes the responsibility of the the criminal. That's not at all what Christianity believes. We're not just letting them get away with it when we forgive them. When you forgive someone, what you are doing is you're recognising that the crime that was committed against you is ultimately before and against a holy and righteous God. And at the end of the day, it's to him they're going to have to answer for, not you, because after all, who are you? Who am I but the people God has created? Brett Cowan will have to one day meet his maker and answer for what he did to Daniel Morecambe. Yeah, he's suffering consequences today because of what he did. He's in prison. But ultimately, for all of eternity, he's going to have to face God for that. And remember and believe when Jesus says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We can't improve upon that. Give it to God. And can I just clear something up as well? We've got to do away with this idea that when you forgive someone in church or whatever, that you just become some sort of passive doormat. Oh, I've forgiven them, so we have to be besties now. You know? This, this, I, this notion of unconditional forgiveness, it doesn't exist in the Bible, yet I've, I've kind of experienced it a bit in church environments. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation. That's exactly why Paul says in Romans 12.8, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Is reconciliation the preferred state? Absolutely. But it's not necessary. You can forgive someone and they don't even know about it. But you can't reconcile unless there's a two-way street. That requires work from both parties. I can be a jerk to you and you can still forgive me Because remember, forgiveness is simply giving up of the right to seek repayment from me, the jerk. But reconciliation requires work on my part as well. And if I'm not willing to do that, you can't reconcile. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that forgiveness in some situations might be inappropriate. You know, for example, um, a family where there's abuse... In that situation, I'd say it's completely appropriate for the wife and her children, if the husband is doing the abusing, to leave. Leave the home. Boundaries might need to be set up between two people to stop them from being near each other. An AVO in the case of sexual abuse, for example. If we're here in church and there's a really bad breakup between a boyfriend and a girlfriend and it's causing division and dissension, it's completely appropriate, I think, for one of the parties to leave this and go find another fellowship again i'm not trying to there's no one solution for any of this it's so relative to the situation but i'm just saying that that forgiveness is not unconditional conditions at some point might be necessary in fact and in fact if condition if if forgiveness was unconditional what on earth was the whole point of the previous section here in matthew 18 15 to 20 that talks about the process of rebuke and correction and addressing sin there is a process for how we are to deal with sin, which means if somebody here today steals your wallet, you can forgive them, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go up to them and say, you've taken my wallet, you've wronged me, give me back my wallet. And if they refuse, then you go through that process of Matthew, of Matthew eighteen fifteen to 20 and seek repentance from them. Forgiveness doesn't mean you just, oh, okay, he's taken my wallet, you know, Next birthday, I'll get a new one. You have every right to say to that person, you have wronged me and seek repentance from them. The key, though, no matter what the situation is, no matter how serious or trivial like a wallet or serious like abuse in the home, the key is whatever conditions are imposed, they must all come from a heart and an attitude of forgiveness. That's the key that we cannot deny here this morning. They must come from a heart of forgiveness where reconciliation, rebuke or boundaries or whatever is required, these must come from a heart of forgiveness. Does that make sense? No matter how we approach our particular situations, we must approach them with forgiveness, lay down our right to seek repayment, give that to God and approach the situation with grace and compassion, with a heart of forgiveness, lest you end up like the hypocritical servant of Matthew 18. So firstly, this morning, we're commanded to forgive. Secondly, the reason why we're commanded to forgive is because God in Christ has forgiven us. And thirdly, this morning, failing to forgive is self-destructive and ultimately a form of blasphemy. I want to finish up this morning by telling you a story that really pulls all the threads of this together. Um, In 2007, my family and I were up in Townsville visiting some family friends. Uh, Gladys and her sustains. Some of you are probably familiar with their story. I've got a book here if you're interested in reading it. And I'm sitting there at the table, um, Cracker Jacks in Townsville, about to enjoy this steak. <laughs> um, and then and Gladys, the mother, uh, has tears in her eyes and she looks at me and she says, you would have been about the same age as my Philip. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, um, on the night of January 22, 1999, uh, they were missionaries, the Stains were missionaries in Odisha, India. And on the night of January 22, uh, Graham, the father, and his two sons, Philip and Timothy, were evangelised in a small village. And one night, they were sleeping in their van. One night, these Hindu extremists came out and burnt the van to the ground with them inside. And they died. And this is their story, Burnt Alive. And um, in response to this tragedy, listen to what Gladys said. When I heard that the family was dead, I told Esther, my daughter, we'll forgive those who killed them, won't we? And she said, yes, mummy, we will. Two weeks later, someone approached me at her school and said, I can't understand how you can forgive my daughter later told me, Mummy, I can't understand how they can't understand how we won't forgive. That was when I understood how deeply the teachings of Christ had penetrated within my daughter. Forgiveness brings healing. It allows the other person a chance to start life afresh. If I have something against you and I forgive you, the bitterness leaves me. It also allows you to accept the forgiveness and move on. Forgiveness liberates both the forgiven and and the forgiver how was i able to forgive the truth is that i myself am a sinner and i needed jesus christ to forgive me because i have forgiveness in my own life it is possible for me to forgive others i'd also read much about the power of forgiveness for instance the church in china had been much persecuted during the earlier regimes and many had suffered terribly even so many had publicly proclaimed their forgiveness of their tormentors And this fact has inspired many more to become Christians. The Bible teaches you to forgive. Jesus Christ set the example. When crucified and suffering, he asked God to forgive those who had killed him, for they know not what they do. I have forgiven those who killed my family, but I still have to heal fully. I still have to go through the grieving process for the people whom I love who are not here. I feel their absence deeply. It has affected my sense of physical well-being. There is no anger but a deep sadness. That's powerful. That's powerful. Now, did Gladys forget the sin that was committed against her? No. Did those who murdered her family ask for forgiveness? No. Did she have reconciliation with those who murdered her family? No. No. Did did forgiveness magically make everything better for her? No. But despite all of that, did Gladys and Esther still forgive? Yes. Why? Because they understood the command to forgive, the reason to forgive, and the failure to forgive. Friends, if you're holding on to unforgiveness here this morning, don't let another moment pass without taking it to the Lord in prayer. Chat to Terry if you need to, chat to any of the elders. They'll be happy to give you godly counsel and wisdom. Loose your burden at the foot of the cross. Forgiveness is the the thread that holds the Christian fabric of congregation together. And resolving what lies between you will reveal who lies within you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to have another day to, to open up your word and to to be taught about the centrality of the, the gospel that is the